In the series that we're in, we're looking at the characteristics of the early church. In fact, the first day of the church, the day of Pentecost, there's about 100 or so people. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, he stands up to preach, and then thousands of people are added to this first church. And then what we see in the passage that we're looking at is how they began to behave. There was kind of a before and after in their life, before they came to know Jesus and what they devoted themselves to after they came to the way of Jesus and the community of Jesus. Uh, my son Ezra, when he was born, he was born with Down syndrome, many of you guys know that, but he was also born with co- what's known as complete AVSD, which stands for atrioventricular septal defect, which is a fancy way of saying he had a hole in his heart. And that meant that his blood in his heart would flow from one chamber to the other chamber and sometimes goes into his lungs, and that's not a good thing. And in Ezra's case, he had five holes in his heart. And so the doctors, what they told us when he was born was that he would need open heart surgery. So that was hard, difficult for my wife and I to process as new parents, first-time parents. And here's what happened. They had to wait until he was six months to do the surgery because you couldn't operate and do open-heart surgery on a newborn's heart. And you had to wait till six months, but you didn't want to wait too long. And so for the first six months of his life, this is pre-COVID, my wife and I, we were quarantining. We couldn't take him anywhere. We stayed indoors. We couldn't go out to eat because his body couldn't um, handle getting sick or picking something up from outside. And so we stayed home for six months. And during the six months, it was very obvious the way that he behaved. So he was very lethargic. He barely moved. In fact, sometimes when he cried, his whole body would turn blue. It was kind of scary, but that's what happened the first six months. And then at six months, he had successful heart surgery. Shout out to Dell Children's Hospital in Austin, Texas. And right after that, it was also very obvious to us the way that he behaved after his heart surgery. Here's a kid that did not, that barely moved for the first six months of his life. And a few months later, now he's beginning to roll around and we would find him under the couch. And he's going to turn five in December. And now he's jumping off of couches and flipping onto his siblings. You have no idea that he had heart surgery. But it was, I say that because it was very obvious to us as his parents. The way that he was before his heart was fixed and restored and renewed and after we saw new signs of life, a new person in a lot of ways. And that's kind of what we see here in the life of the early church. They come to Jesus and now there are signs of new life in this early Christian community. And they began to behave different than they used to before they came to know Jesus. Now, we all know this fundamentally that when we come to know Jesus, we stop doing some of the things that maybe we used to. But what we also have to understand when we come to Jesus, not only do we stop doing what we used to, we pick up new ways of behaving, new characteristics when we give ourselves to Jesus. And so what we find in this passage that we've been looking at the last few weeks is what these early believers, the first church, they gave themselves to signs of new life. And so two weeks ago, Andrew talked about how they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and then to the breaking of bread and fellowship. Last week, Dan talked about how they were devoted to prayer. And that word devotion there is found six times in the book of Acts. It means it's this unwavering, relentless pursuit of something. And so they were devoted with this unwavering, relentless pursuit of listening to the apostles' teaching, which was the story of Jesus and what he means to us as we come to him, and to prayer, to give ourselves to depending on God. And today we're going to look at another sign of new life in the early church, in the first church, specifically their responsibility to one another. And so we pick up the story in Acts chapter 2, verse 44 to 45 is where we'll be. But I want to read verse 44 real quick. Here's what it says. Can we read this together? Acts 2, verse 44. 
all the believers were together and had everything in common. First thing that we see is that they were all together and had everything in common. When we think of what we have in common, we, uh, we tend to think in terms of likes and dislikes. So let me ask you guys a question. Raise your hands here if you love breakfast tacos. That's most of the room. If you didn't raise your hand, come up for prayer after service and we'll pray for you. <laughs> for all the normal people in the room that raise their hand, we all have this in common that we love breakfast tacos, right? We, we tend to think in, uh, think in terms of likes and dislikes. But the difference with the early church, when it says that they had things in common, they had everything in common, is that their commonality was not based on personal preferences. It was not based on church affiliation or who their personal favorite preacher was. Their commonality and unity was based on this new community that Jesus had called them into. This new way of living that they now all participated in. In other words, for those of us in this room, what we have in common is not an affiliation to a church. But there is a spiritual glue, the spiritual bond that holds us together because we all belong to the same family of God. Later on in Acts chapter 4, it says, they were all one in heart and in mind. And this is important because right after this, we're going to see the way that they behaved, this early church. And the way that they behaved is going to seem drastic and out of this world unless we understand why they behaved that way. And the why was because they had everything in common. They were united spiritually and missionally because of what Jesus had done in their lives. And so here's what they did. Because they had everything in common, verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And what's fascinating is that we might read this and think, well, it's just right here in the early church and we never see it again. But we see it two chapters later. And uh, we don't know what the timeline is between chapter 2 and chapter 4, but it's two different occurrences. And here's what we see in greater detail, the same t concept, Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So here we see it again two chapters later in greater detail. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. People sold their land and their properties and the proceeds from those sales. They brought it to the apostles' feet, to the church leadership's feet, so it can give in to people in need. What does this even mean? Was this some sort of utopian society? Was this Christian communism? Like what is this? What's happening here? It was none of that. You don't see the apostles the day that the church began standing up and preaching on how to get rid of your possessions or preaching on tithing or giving away what they owned. This was not legislated behavior. It was learned behavior. This was the response of people who understood the high price that Jesus paid for their salvation. It was the response of people who understood God's great generosity towards them. It was the response of people who understood Jesus' teaching that said it is better to give than to receive. It was an overflow of hearts that were radically changed and had a spiritual encounter with Jesus. 
And this is what we see in the early church, this new way of living. They gave everything they had to one another. It's almost too difficult for us to understand. And we find this all throughout the New Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church, he says, though you were in poverty, you were rich in generosity. See, these are people that were poor, yet they were rich towards God. And not only do we find it all throughout the New Testament, we find it in generations afterwards. We find it in historical data. For example, in the first century, there was this man named Justin Martyr, and he was, an, he was a, one of the first uh, church philosophers. He was an apologist and a historian. Here's what Justin Martyr says about the Christians in the first century. He says this, We who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have to a common stock and communicate to share with everyone in need. Now, this is Christian historical data from the first century, but we also find it in non-Christian historical data. We find this in the letter in the second century called the letter to Diognetus. And here's what it says. This is a non-Christian source talking about Christians. They share their table with all, but not their bed with all. In other words, they don't sleep with everyone, but they give everything they have to everyone. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of things. It's fascinating, right? This is talked about of early church Christians. This is new signs, new way of living that we see over and over in different generations. They are poor and make many rich. They're short of everything but have plenty. This is only possible by transformed, renewed hearts. This type of heart towards generosity is not just reserved for the first church. It's expected for all of us who follow Jesus. Now, on the surface, when we get to this teaching, this is one of the most drastic characteristics of the early church that we find in Scripture. And it's all, almost too complex for us to understand in a highly individualistic and consumerist culture that we live in. We can't wrap our minds around it. They sold land and property they had, and they just gave away the proceeds. They shared everything they had, and they lived in this community. What does it mean? What does it mean for our church? What does it mean for you as individuals? And here's what I want to do. I want to take the heart of what was behind the early church and apply it to us this morning by giving you three principles to remember for the, early, uh, for Christ, for the people of God when it comes to generosity. Three principles to remember for the people of God when it comes to generosity. Here's the first thing that the Bible teaches us when it comes to generosity, especially in practical terms. Number one, we are to give cheerfully. We are to give cheerfully. I don't know if you've heard the story of the mother, and she gave her daughter a lesson, a moral lesson on how, what it means to give. And so this mother, before she went to church, she gave her daughter one quarter, and then she gave her daughter one dollar. And then she said, hey, when you go to church, you can give whatever it is that you want to the church offering that comes by and the plates that come by. And so church happens, and after church, the mother asked the daughter, hey, what did you get, the dollar or the quarter? And so the daughter responds and says, I was going to give the dollar, uh, the dollar, but while I was sitting there in church, the preacher said to give cheerfully. And I realized that I would be more cheerful if I kept the dollar and gave the quarter. And this is what oftentimes many of us do when it comes to giving. If it makes me happy and more cheerful, which oftentimes means keeping more and giving less, then I'll do it. Right? Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Everybody say cheerful giver. 
And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, this is from the book of Psalms, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor and their righteousness endures forever. God loves a cheerful giver, not someone that gives reluctantly or under compulsion. So if you give, don't give because you feel obligated. Don't give because your heart has been emotionally pulled at by a preacher. Give out of a heart that's cheerful. God loves someone who gives cheerfully. A cheerful giver has no attachment to the things of this world. They freely give it away. Cheerful givers don't view it as losing money or resources. They view it as meeting someone else's need. Cheerful givers value joy over happiness. See, in the culture that we live in, we can get real happy by owning lots of things. There are lots of things that we can buy and purchase and possess that makes you feel very happy, and there's nothing wrong with that. But cheerful givers are not attached to those things, and they understand that even in poverty, you can have joy through generosity. Again, that's why Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and said, though you were in poverty, you were rich in generosity. Cheerful givers understand joy is more important than happiness. Here's a second principle to remember for the people of God when it comes to generosity. Give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. Um, this story came out in 1994, and if you were around at that time, you could probably remember the story. It was made uh, the news all around the world. A 67-year-old carpenter named Russell Herman died. And Russell Herman, he left a staggering will behind. A staggering inheritance. And in his plan for distribution, he said that he would give $2 billion to the city of East St. Louis. He would give a billion dollars to the state of Illinois. He would give $2.5 billion to the national forest system. And to top it off, he said that he would give $6 trillion to the government to help pay off the national debt. Now this sounds amazing, right? What an act of generosity. The only problem was that Russell Herman, the only thing that he owned when he died was a 1983 Oldsmobile. He made grand pronouncements, but there was no real generosity involved. He didn't have any of the money. He just wrote it down on a piece of paper. His promises were meaningless because there was nothing to back them up. See, when we give sacrificially, we give until it hurts, until we feel it. This is a new sign of life when it comes to following Jesus being generous sacrificially. You may have heard the story of the widow's might, and a story that comes out of uh, the book of Luke. And Jesus, he's at the temple, and at the temple, people would drop off their tithes and their, off their offerings to God. And Jesus, he's there, he's teaching, and here's what happens. Luke chapter 21, verse 1. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Here's what Jesus says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The story, it makes no sense when it comes to our standards. Now people in our culture get buildings with their names on it because of large donations. And Jesus says here, as he sees the poor putting in, uh, the rich putting in a lot of money, and he sees this poor widow putting in two small copper coins, she says, she gave more. And these two small copper coins, 
They were the smallest coins of the time that Jesus lived in, and you really couldn't buy anything. Some historians believe that you could have took those two small copper coins and bought a bath at a public house, but that's all you could do with it. It was very small. It was almost meaningless, but this is all she had. And Jesus says she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. So what's the point that Jesus is trying to make? Is he saying that if you're poor, you should deplete all your resources, or if you're rich, you should deplete all your resources? It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying... Whether you're rich, you're poor, or you're middle class, hello, Alamo Ranch, that whatever it is that you give, it's not the amount that you give, but it's how much it means to you when you give, how much it impacts you, how much it alters the way that you are currently living, how much it goes against the grain of the culture's standard of consuming. That's sacrificial giving. We saw in the passage we left, read earlier, Josephus, he came, says, he sold his property and his land. Imagine that, having property and land. And you sell it, and you have all these proceeds that come from it. And you give it away. It's tempting for us to think all the things that we could do with that money, aside from giving it away. The people who have renewed hearts and understand what generosity means knows That giving is not a lose-lose situation. You give sacrificially. You give until it hurts. It's why at our church, we don't uh, tell you how much to give. And some churches you might go to, they say you have to give 10%. We don't tell you that. Because tithing, it may not actually affect the way that you live. For some of you, you could give 10% and you don't even notice it coming out of your bank account. Some of you can give 20% and you don't even notice it. And that's why tithing is not the standard because there might, it may not be sacrificial giving, but then there are others of you who may not be able to tithe. There's no way you can give 10% right now in this season of life. Maybe you can give 3 or 4%. Whatever it is, as long as it alters the way that you currently live, you can be at peace knowing the amount that you're giving. Because God knows for us to be generous, truly generous, We have to get to a point when we say, God, regardless of where this goes and regardless of what it looks like, I trust you with my life. It's a matter of trust, not a matter of how much money God needs from you. I was here earlier this week at the office, and we had our Mothers of Preschoolers group, Mops. It's an amazing group. If you're a mom of young kids, you can join that every other Thursday. And I was holding the door open, and there's this uh, mom that came by, and she had her two kids. And they had given all the kids chocolate uh, at Mops, and so they had these bags of chocolates. And so um, the son walks by, and I said, hey, can I have some of your chocolate? And he said, no, and then he kept walking. (laughs) And then... The daughter followed, and I figured I'm not going to even ask her because he said, no, kids don't give. They're not generous. And so she walks by me, and then she whispers to her mom, I want to give my chocolate. And so here I am standing at the door with another gentleman from church, and she comes back to us, and she takes out multiple pieces of chocolate and gives it to us. I mean, it's the most generous kid I've seen in my life. (laughs) Give sacrificially. Until it hurts, until you can think about it and say, I don't know, I might need this, but God, I trust you with it. If your giving doesn't call you to say, God, I trust you regardless, you might be just giving out of compulsion and not giving sacrificially. And here's the final point, and worship team, you guys can make your way up. Give knowing it's God's. Give knowing it's God's. Let's read what it said earlier in the uh, uh, Acts passage we were reading, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. 
No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. Here's the thing. I know you're sitting there, and this is hard to listen to because we don't like people getting in our business. I work for that money. It's mine. Stop telling me how to use it, preacher man. We don't like people getting in our business. But here's what God understands. Everything that we do in life revolves around our money. The house that you live in, the food that you buy, where you're going after church, what you're wearing this morning, where you live, the neighborhoods that you live in, the places that you go to. And God knows that we can become so attached to those things that they become an idol in our lives. And we forget at times that everything we have actually comes from God. We have an owner mindset and not a steward mindset. I shared this story earlier this year. I thought it would be appropriate to share it again. Uh, we were uh, selling some toys because our kids have way too many toys, talking about accumulating possessions. And so we were trying to purge some of these toys earlier this year. Uh, and we had this, uh, uh, this kind of backyard, big slide, playground thing, mini one that we were, give, we were selling. And I listed it online on Facebook. And someone came, and she, she didn't even ask me you know, to negotiate. She just wanted it. And she pulled up in her pickup truck, and she had her, her mom with her, I mean her uh, son with her. And she told me she was a single mom, and they're testing out the playground and so and so. And then she said, hey, can I um, Venmo you the money digitally? And so she sent me the money. And as she was getting in her car and driving away, I felt so convicted. And I felt so embarrassed. And here I am, God saying, you don't need that money. Here's a single mom. Why are you collecting like $150 from her? And so I felt so convicted. So I messaged her and I said, hey, I'm sending you this money back. You can have it. God bless you and so and so. And she said, oh, thank you so much. I felt good about it. And two days later, I go on Facebook, and then she listed the item for sale. And so now, I'm almost like offended. I'm going, wait. I sacrificed. I gave it to you. How dare you sell it and make money off of my generosity? You know, these are the thoughts that are going through my head, and I process it with my wife. Like, I don't know why this is bothering me so much. I thought I was blessing her, and here she is selling it to make some money off of my generosity. And God convicted me again. So you don't give with strings attached. You don't give counting the cost and seeing where it goes and following the money and the tracing the money and where it goes. You give out of obedience. I asked you to do something, and you did it. That's obedience. I asked you to do something, and you followed through on it. Many times, it's hard for us to let things go even after it leaves our hands because we're so attached to things. We're so attached to money and what, we, what we've earned and our income and our possessions. I'm not saying that we need to sell everything we have and sell your property and we all need to live on one big land and sing Kumbaya. And that's not what I'm saying. But in the early church here, when we look at the book of Acts, we see signs of new life. This is the first day of the church. The Holy Spirit fills them and God adds thousands to the church. This is how they behaved. They gave cheerfully. They gave sacrificially. They gave without counting the cost because they knew everything that they had belonged to God. Everything that they had. They weren't losing money. They were giving to people in need. It's two different ways to look at giving. So here's some next steps for us this morning. Here's the first thing that I want to say. If you're here this morning and you have a need, a financial need, we would love to help you as a church. We have many people in our church, many of you who have contributed 
and we have a budget, a missions budget, a, a specifically a benevolence budget that goes towards people that can't make rent payments or buy groceries or don't know where they're going to sleep at night. If you're in that stage or you know someone that has a need, our goal the rest of this year is to bless as many people as we can that are in need. And so if that's you, you can go to outerwest.org resources. There's a form that you fill out, and we'd love to get in touch with you and to bless you. In fact, we were giving out money earlier this year to people in need. And this is not a brag. This is because of your generosity as a church that we're able to give. But we had a few people from the same apartment complex come, and the landlord just kept sending more people to us. God has blessed us, and so we want to bless others who are in need. Again, if that's you, we would love to help you at os.org slash resources. For others of you, a next step might be understanding what unites us as a church. It's not just church affiliation. If that's the only thing that unites you to this place is that you go to Outer West Community Church, that is a surface level unity. What we have to understand is that God has united all of us together spiritually. You have your immediate family, but this is your family sitting in this place. This is the family of God, and so when we give, we are contributing to the family of God. We give out of hearts that overflow, knowing that Jesus has given to us. For others of you, the final next step might be to engage in one of these ways of generosity. Again, these are signs of new life for those who are following Jesus. Radical generosity. Let's just put that aside for a second. What are the signs of living as part of this culture that we live in? Let's look at that for a second. I was on my neighborhood app, and no judgment, I'm just sharing with you what I saw. But we were, people were talking as a group about getting permanent Christmas lights on their houses. You can do that now if you didn't know. And everyone was sharing the quotes, it's $3,000 for my house and $5,000 for my house, and we did it and we love it. That's great. If you want to do that, if that's your thing, that's great. But this holiday season, Americans will spend close to a trillion dollars. Spend close to a trillion dollars. New ornaments, new trees, new pillows, new decorations, new car, new gifts. I'm not saying don't do any of those things. Buy your kids gifts. God wants us to be happy and enjoy the possess. But if there is a sign, there's one telltale sign that shows us that we are simply following the culture is if we can look at this $1 trillion statue, this idol, and if we just constantly bow to it every holiday season. And in the book of Acts, we see the people of God. They're rejecting the ways of culture and saying, we're just going to give to people in need. We're just going to sell and proceeds, we're going to give. We're just going to give it away. It's a sign of a new way of living, of transformed hearts, of people that truly understand the generosity of Jesus towards them. And all of it is centered on this one thing. You may have missed it when we read it earlier, but I want us to read this again. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 35. Look at what's right in the middle of this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possession was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. It's amazing because in the beginning it says they were one heart, one mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own. 
Right in the middle of that, verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then right after that, again, they gave away what they had. What was central to their generosity was the preaching of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Why? When you understand the high price that God paid, the generosity that God has showed towards you and I, the forgiveness, the mercy, the love, the service, over and over and over. It's why the early church, though they were poor, were rich in generosity. They were simply reflecting what Jesus did for them on the cross. Our generosity can only be rooted in the cross. If it's rooted in an emotional tug this morning, don't give. We've got to get to a point where we truly understand that God gave. God so loved that he gave. So we, in return, are giving people with our time, our talents, and our treasures.